Good morning. And I'm Pastor Jay. It is a privilege to have you with us. And uh, as Peggy shared up here, I want to encourage you to be in prayer for this week for VBS, Vacation Bible School. Uh, Michelle Brock and Heather Sukup, our children's director, have, their army of volunteers have done an incredible job getting prepared for this. This is a big thing. I want to encourage you to be in prayer for those attending, kids and their families. Some of them, many of them will be Christians, kids, but some of them will not. And may this be a week that the Lord does an incredible work here in the lives of those kids who come. So be in prayer for that. Secondly, just a reminder, if you're visiting with us, our guest this morning, Becky and I have had a couple people just in the last month or so, other places we've been talking to folks who are trying to get involved in a newer church, remind us how difficult it can be trying to get assimilated and connected inside a new church. And so if you are a guest here or new here, really want to encourage you to take advantage next weekend of the um, opportunity, to that second hour opportunity to get involved in the Connections class, Bridges to Connect. Uh, there are many ways to connect in our church, but sometimes it's still intimidating and hard. And so I want to encourage you, there's nothing more important for our spiritual growth and encouragement beyond reading scripture and prayer than getting connected in biblical community. So I want to encourage you, if you're new or here or guests, uh, let us help you. If you aren't getting connected, please feel free to talk to one of us and let us help you find that connection. Uh, Becky and I just returned from Israel with uh, 56 people. We had a wonderful trip. Here is the, here's the motley crew up on the Mount of Olives and uh, taken. We had a delightful time. What a wonderful group of people that we went with and thoroughly enjoyed uh, having them. A um, couple of photographs just to give you a taste of it. The next one is, uh, that's in ancient Caesarea, right on the Mediterranean. And uh, I was teaching about Paul there and he had been in prison there. This was the capital of the Roman Empire in that region for 500 years. Pontius Pilate lived in this opulent Roman city, Caesarea. So it's quite a, uh, quite a headquarters, and the theater there still faces the Mediterranean and is still a, just a delight, quite an architectural thing to see. Next one is uh, all of us actually floating on the Sea of Galilee, which is not called the Sea of Galilee over there, which is called Lake Kinneret because it's the shape of a violin, they think. And so it's just a small freshwater lake, lowest freshwater lake on the planet, about 13 miles by 7 miles, and a delight to be out and see more recorded miracles around that body of water than anywhere else on planet Earth in the Bible. The next one is our group in ancient Capernaum, Jesus' adopted home city. He was born in Nazareth, a little know-nothing village. As an adult, as he launched his public ministry, he moved to Capernaum, which was much more of an international uh, kind of a, a town, had a flair to it, an international highway actually went through it. And that was a very strategic move for him as he was the Messiah for all peoples. Last photograph is something just uncovered a few years ago. In fact, when Becky and I first went to Israel, uh, our first couple trips, this was not uncovered yet. This is the first century synagogue in Magdala, right along the Sea of Galilee. This is where Mary Magdalene was from. When it talks about Jesus preaching in the synagogues of Galilee, almost 100% certainty he would have preached in this synagogue. It's very close to Capernaum. And this is actually, there are other synagogues throughout 
Israel that are 4th and 5th century ruins. This is one of the very few in Galilee that actually is a 1st century synagogue. And it looks very different, much more primitive. But to know that you're sitting likely right where Jesus would have been teaching was something quite amazing. And again, just uncovered in about 2010. So just a little bit of a flavor and a greeting from Israel. I invite you to open your Bibles to the end of your New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3. If you are a guest with us, we are currently walking through a series in 1 Peter. I really want to thank Gabe Moore, our, our men's director on staff, and Marty Volz, Pastor Marty Volz, who filled in so capably while I was gone and fed you well. Becky and I had a chance to listen to both those sermons just this last weekend and enjoyed them very much. 1 Peter is a series we're currently in, and we are in chapter 3. This is a small letter. Peter, the apostle of Jesus, his disciple, wrote two letters in our New Testament. This is the first. Very small letter, only 105 verses, with a huge theme. And that theme is hope. Hope. Real hope. Finding hope, specifically, in a hostile world. And Peter's message in a nutshell is this, that real hope isn't just a pipe dream. It's actually available to anyone who has experienced something. And that something is spiritual rebirth. They've been born again. The Holy Spirit has transformed them, meaning they have come to God on his terms, not their terms. A lot of people come to God on their terms, but they're not really saved. They're not really born again. Hope is available only when we come to God on his terms, meaning we have surrendered in repentance and owned our sin and we have committed our life to Jesus Christ as Savior and believe that he died in our place. And Peter's theme is true followers of Jesus can have real hope, a living hope, because they have a faith in a living God. That's his theme. And in the section we're looking at this weekend, Peter's talking about one of the most common experiences to any of us mistreatment. Have you been mistreated this week? In the first service, I was standing next to one of my grandsons, and I leaned over and I said, have you ever mistreated your brother? I pointed over at his brother. Oh, yeah. Has he mistreated you? Oh, yeah. I said, today's sermon is about how to respond to mistreatment. Oh. (laughs) So, today we're going to talk about one of the most common experiences to all of us. One of the most miserable experiences for all, and something all of us have done, mistreating others. And Peter is going to talk head-on about mistreatment. And to do that, he's going to address two things. If you are newer with us, we simply take the Bible chunk by chunk, section by section, or as New Testament scholars call it, pericope by pericope. And we're going to be looking at verses 8 down through verse 17. That is the chunk we're studying today. And Peter is addressing two things in this section. Both are directed at true born-again Christians. Number one, do not return evil with evil when it comes to being mistreated. And number two, how do you respond to mistreatment? What are some things to remember? And here Peter's going to give us some very, very important biblical wisdom. So first of all, let's dive in. In his first command, do not return evil with evil. Kids, young people, adults, when you are mistreated, the very first command here is don't dish it back. Don't give evil back for evil that comes in. Look at verses 8 to 12. Let me read these and then we'll dive in. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. And then here it comes. 
do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. There you go. Want to shock somebody? Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And now he's going to quote from Psalm 34 here. And here is the quote. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter begins here with with one of the most common things all of us face, being mistreated. Some of us were mistreated this morning. Some of us, let's be honest, some of us mistreated people this morning, even on the way here. Children mistreat parents. Parents mistreat children. Siblings mistreat each other. Friends mistreat friends. Employees mistreat employers. Employers mistreat employees. And on and on the list goes. Now, Understand, first of all, the immediate context. When you're doing Bible study, one of the most important things is, well, what's the immediate context here? The immediate context Peter's talking about is being mistreated for our commitment to Christ. But by principle, this clearly applies to any mistreatment. But his context here is specifically he's writing to people who are being abused, mocked, and mistreated because of their allegiance and their commitment and discipleship of Jesus. And we know that, especially like from verse 9, if you look at verse 9 again, he's writing and he says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called. That means he's speaking to true Christians here. To this you were called. And he's reminding true Christians, the Holy Spirit's alive in you. And you are to respond differently than the world would respond. Peter's words here, verses 8 through 12, are key to his whole letter. I mean, it points us back to his theme. He keeps coming back to over and again. This is only 105 verses. It's not a big letter. And his theme keeps coming out again and again. How Christians can find hope in times of persecution. And just a reminder, the people he's writing to are living in the first century. They are following Jesus, but they are in the Roman Empire, and it's a very hostile climate. They were not in a nice neighborhood, so to speak, and there was a lot of hostility coming their way. Some of them were being hunted down, some of them were being tortured, some of them were being killed for their faith. And Peter is writing to them, and he is reminding them, trust God and don't fear. And that is about as unnatural a response as a human being can have. Our default is to not trust the Lord at that point, panic and fear. And Peter keeps coming back to don't fear, trust God, lean into your theology and remember, if you know Christ, whose you are and who God is. Don't fear. A couple years ago, one of our heroes, Becky and mine, actually he spoke here several years ago, Greg Livingstone, founder of Frontiers Ministry, largest mission agency in the world to Muslims. He wrote a wonderfully challenging letter, and I want to quote one paragraph out of it. He sent this out to a wide group of people. He said, quote, we are not left on earth as believers to be safe. 
but to follow our Savior in laying down our lives. So sit with your children and grandchildren and model compassion into their moldable spirits. Remind them that greater is he who is in you than anyone who might be against you. Write out for them the words of our Lord. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I remain a faithful fellow soldier of the cross, Greg Livingstone. One thing I love about Greg is anytime we've ever sat with him, there is this fearlessness in him about advancing the gospel among the least reached, even areas that would be considered, quote, closed. There is no closed country, really, to the gospel. It's just a matter of how sneaky you can be getting in. But there is no closed God. And even if it's unsafe, biblically, the answer is, so what? We're commanded to take the gospel to the least reached people on the earth. Let's turn to one other passage where it talks about mistreatment. In fact, Jesus' own words, Matthew chapter 10, where we get some of the most straightforward instruction about mistreatment. Matthew chapter 10, the words of Jesus, I'll start in verse 16. Hope you brought a Bible with you this morning. It's always important to be in the text, look at the text, ask what does the text say to us. My propensity is to look at the text and ask, what do I want the text to say to me? <laughs> and the biggest challenge for the student of Scripture and the believer is, no, what does the Bible say? Not how did I grow up, not what did my mom and dad say, not what was I taught somewhere. What does the actual text say in context? That is always the hardest challenge when it comes to Bible study and to understanding the scriptures. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. One thing about Jesus, when it comes to following him, he never ever watered down the requirements. He never sugarcoated what it would be like to be one of his disciples. In fact, in the Greek, it's even more extreme. He, he goes out of his way to make it clear that if you're going to be one of his disciples, it's not going to be an easy road in this life. It will be rewarding, and you can be filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, but it's not going to be easy. And mistreatment, and rejection, and harassment, and abuse, and persecution, and death will likely follow. And he was very clear about that. Such a different message from the prosperity gospel that beams out on TV today and through a lot of books. So opposite. It's such a false gospel. Such a false gospel. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 22, for example. How do you fit the prosperity gospel into this? I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Imagine little helpless, stupid, stubborn sheep among a pack of wolves. You'd say there's no hope for them. <laughs> That's a hostile situation. That's how Jesus compares sending us out as believers into the world. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves. Be on your guard. Now notice what he says to expect. You will be handed over to local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do you know anybody who's been arrested for the gospel? Some of you do. Becky and I have met people arrested, even put in prison for their commitment to Christ. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, 
but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death. A father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Something like 1984. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Look at verse 28. Very similar to Peter's refrain. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. of the, We just sang Mighty Fortress. Talked about this. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Nobody preached about hell with more ferocity than Jesus did. And then lastly, just down to verse 32 to 36. The reminder from Jesus, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And then we come to a very difficult verse for a lot of us. I admit that. This is the exact opposite of how most of us picture Jesus. Do not suppose, says Jesus, that I have come to bring peace to earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And that has certainly been true of many throughout the centuries. That The greatest hostility came from their own clan, their own extended family their own tribe, their own neighborhood. So in this section, he's reminding his followers, not everyone's going to be anxious to hear the truth. Have you experienced that? Sometimes we think, oh, if they could just hear the truth, they'll embrace it joyfully. Well, Jesus is very clear. Not everyone is going to be uh, excited to hear the truth. In fact, many people, when they encounter the gospel, the truth of Jesus as the Son of God, they're going to react to it. It's not always joyful news to people that they need to own their sin, submit to a higher authority, and give their life to a Savior. To God's elect, that's great news, but to those who are not, that's not so good news. And some are going to reject it. Many will get hostile, and some will get downright violent. Jesus said in John 15, remember, he said, when the world hates you, it hated me first. An important reminder. And so, in Peter's letter, back to 1 Peter, he's reminding his followers of something very important that we all forget. He's telling these early Christians, don't be surprised when suffering comes your way. And if you're like me, I seem to regularly get surprised again. Like, I didn't think it should be this hard. I didn't think it should be this difficult. You ever find yourself thinking that? And Peter's saying, don't be surprised. In fact, look at chapter 4. 1 Peter, verses 12 to 14, he actually says this. Peter, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 14, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed. You know the connection, notice the connection between suffering and joy. 
This is a connection made often over and over in the Bible. It's so counterintuitive. So that you may be overjoyed when glory is revealed. When we first launched this series uh, a couple months ago, I quoted from R.C. Sproul, great theologian, but one of his lesser-known books called Surprised by Suffering. I want to quote that section again because it just is so well put. He writes, and it's just in the preface to the book, his book Surprised by Suffering. Great book, by the way. Writing to True Christians, R.C. Sproul says this in the preface to the book. My purpose in writing this book is that you would not be surprised when suffering comes into your life. I want you to see that suffering is not all that uncommon, but also, this is really, really important. I want you to see that suffering is not all that uncommon, but also that it is not random. That's the difference between a Christian worldview and a non-Christian worldview. In other words, it is sent by our Heavenly Father who is both sovereign and loving for our ultimate good. So the suffering in our lives is not random, but sent by our Heavenly Father, who is sovereign and loving for our ultimate good. And then listen to his last sentence. This is worth the price of admission today. I want you to understand that suffering is a vocation. He means to the believer. A calling from God. Close quote. I think you would agree with me, that's a very different way than most of us typically think, and I know it's very different from my default setting when I come into the next round of suffering or trials, be they big, be they small. At the heart, friends, young people, at the heart of 1 Peter is the reminder that if you are committed to Christ, if you call Jesus Lord, if you are saying, I'm all in, which the Greek word pistuo, I believe, that's what it really means, It's not just I'm affirming facts about the gospel. It means I'm all in. I affirm them and I'm all in. Peter is saying, if that's you, understand abuse is on the menu. Mistreatment and suffering are on the menu. But Peter also wants you to understand something else. He wants me to understand something else. When this suffering, mistreatment comes, growth Christian maturity and joy are not automatic. He's very clear. You're saying, well, what's the key? The key is our response. That's the key. He goes through this, I mean, he's, he's again and again and again. The key is this. Suffering can result in joy, growth, maturity, and peace. Or, unfortunately, it can result in despair Depression, discouragement, and bitterness. In other words, when we encounter sovereign trials in our life, suffering, mistreatment, abuse, fill in the blank, we will never stay the same person on the other side of it. Ever. We will either move one direction or the other. Right now, this morning, a number of us are going through very painful things. And the point is, you are not staying in the middle. You're either moving one way in your response to it all, or you're moving the other way. And it's just a good, sobering reminder to all of us. And Peter is very clear about that. You're always moving one way 
or the other. Response is everything to suffering. That brings us to a second point where he gets very practical today, and that is responding to the mistreatment. Verses 13 to verse 17. And here's just a good reminder. Go through the Bible and be reminded that lots of people were mistreated. You hardly get out of Genesis, and the mistreatment is overflowing. Cain was jealous over Abel, and what's he do? He kills, kills his brother. Talk about mistreatment. Jacob lies and steals Esau's blessing. Joseph's brothers, talk about cruelty, beat him, throw him in a pit, and then sell him into slavery. I doubt very many of us here have experienced that level of betrayal and cruelty. Pharaoh mistreated the Hebrews, the Babylonians, and Assyrians, two of the largest world empires, divinely sent by God, came in and pillaged, ransacked, and destroyed Jerusalem. That's called severe mistreatment. And then worst of all was the mistreatment the Son of God encountered. Cruelty, betrayal, lies, kangaroo court, unjust execution. Again, the question when you are being mistreated, some of you are being mistreated right now, or you're mistreating somebody, but the question when you're getting mistreatment, when you're being rejected, when you're getting hassled, when you're going through persecution and trials, especially for your faith in Christ, the question is, how am I going to respond? I remember talking to a very precious woman a number of years ago, Becky and I knew, in one of our churches, who had grown up in a just toxic, toxic household. Father who I believe was truly an evil man. And as we worked with her month after month over a period of several years, we kept trying to nudge her towards, yes, we, we can't understand the, the extent of his cruelty, but you can't let bitterness poison your soul. I remember talking to her one night on the phone again. I was chatting with her, and she was just pouring out her grief, and I was nudging her towards this, and she said all of a sudden very strongly to me, she said, I will never forgive my father. I will never forgive him. I won't even try. And that is a very dangerous place to be for any of us because that's when the poison begins to just consume us. In verses 13 to 17, Peter now gives us four very practical pieces of wisdom. You want practical stuff? Here it is. A biblical wisdom facing mistreatment. So whether you've been mistreated recently or are in the middle of being mistreated, or if not, hang on, you will be shortly. Here's some very practical wisdom. And friends, remember, young people, hear this. The stakes are enormous that we follow this. This is not just nice practical wisdom that if you follow it, fine. If not, oh well. The stakes are enormous if we respond biblically or not. Number one, and this one is super duper counterintuitive, verses 13 and 14. When it comes your way, mistreatment, count yourself blessed. You can hear all, all of this going right. Count yourself blessed. He says this twice. Verse thir- chapter 3, verse 14. And chapter 4, verse 14. So let's look at it. Chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Couldn't put it more clearly. By the way, the same word, same Greek word used for in the, in the uh, Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. Same exact word in the Greek. You are blessed 
And then chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. This takes us back to James, chapter 1, verse 2. When James says a similar thing, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of any kind. Or consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of of, of any kind. Now the question is why? why? If you're sitting here this morning going through some really painful stuff, really difficult season right now, or you're being mistreated by somebody, why should you consider that joyful? Why should you consider yourself blessed? James tells us why. He tells us that the trials and suffering we're enduring, number one, come from God and are sifted through his sovereign will, but he tells us that here's why you should count yourself blessed and count it all joy. Because those circumstances precisely offer us the opportunity for accelerated growth, maturity, and joy in our faith. That's why. That's why. They offer the, it doesn't mean we're going to automatically move that way. Remember, we're always moving one or two directions. We're never staying neutral. But they do offer the opportunity to move on an accelerated path towards something all of us who know Christ really do want, growth, maturity, joy. How about just peace? Just peace. James says trials offer the best path to that direction. Meaning that if a Christian will stop in the midst of the pain and ask God for something, James says in verse 5, 1 verse 5, that in the midst of trials, what first you need to do is ask for wisdom. Next question is wisdom for what? Here's the key. Wisdom not to waste what you're going through. The, the, the only thing I can think of worse than going through the mess is going through the mess and ending up worse on the other side of it, right? James says, when you're in the midst of the pain and the trials and the mistreatment, ask God for wisdom, wisdom for what? Not to waste what you're going through so that when you do get on the other side, you're a different person, more joyful, more gentle, more generous, more peaceful. That's what James is saying. And God promises that exact thing. Now let me give you, an, in other words, another way to think of this. A lot of us, when we're going through something painful, well, often we will think, or if we're going through a really difficult time, we'll often think something like this. I can't pursue holiness right now, and I really can't pursue obedience at the moment because I need to get through this first. It's just all-consuming, right? We've all been there. We've all thought that way. Problem is, it's flatly unbiblical and it's, it's the wrong way to go about it. The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says our present painful trial, whatever it is, fill in the blank, is actually sovereignly designed by God to make us holy and lead us deeper into joy. That's why to say, well, I, first I got to get through all this, then I'll get back to focusing on spiritual things. That is a, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster. The reason the Christian can be so confident that God is calling them into deeper joy through the mistreatment all goes back to theology. That we have an all-powerful God and that he's good. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's right on time and everything is right on schedule. I love Psalm 107 verse 1. A lot of you know it. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. He's good. All of what we're talking about this morning 
is predicated on our theology. The reason you can trust God when mistreatment comes, when an evil person comes against you, when you are abused, when an employer takes advantage, whatever the circumstance is, the reason you can count yourself blessed, the reason you can praise God is because you know he's all-powerful and he's good. And whatever he's doing, and there's usually many layers to what he's doing, we can have confidence that he's in charge of the details and it's for his glory and our own good. And we sometimes we've got to just keep saying that over and over and over to ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to have the opposite response. Just finished reading a small book uh, called Green Leaf in Drought by Isabel Kuhn. Isabel Kuhn was a missionary to China. But she's writing this about another couple that's largely unknown. It was the last couple to get out of communist China. That last Western missionary couple to get out of communist China. Arthur and Wilda Matthews. And it's just a short book about them and what they experienced. And you say, well, what's the title? Green Leaf in Drought. What's that mean? Well, the, the Matthews had a horrendous time as the last missionary couple getting out of communist China in the 1950s. And the level of mistreatment and abuse they have faced, uh, faced was, was horrendous as they were making their way out of the country, trying to get out. And uh, Isabel Kuhn captures the secret to them producing what she calls green leaves in drought. In other words, the joy they experienced in the midst of all the mistreatment and setbacks and obstacles was profound. Why? How did they produce green leaves in a time of drought and I want to read you one sentence in which she captures the essence of their story. And this is very relevant for all of us. She says, quote, God dealt with them, that is Arthur and Wilda, Matthews, about delighting in his will rather than merely submitting to his will. That's really significant. See, there's basically three responses to God's will for the believer. I can resist it. I can submit. A lot of us often are there like, okay. And we kind of grudgingly submit. The secret to green leaf in drought, the secret to joy in the midst of mistreatment, harassment, suffering, persecution, trials, is not just submitting to the will of God, but actually delighting in his will, even when it's painful. And it's a great little book, Green Leaf in Drought, and she talks about their story. So, first of all, count yourself blessed. Why? Because of our theology. Secondly, Peter says, don't fear. Verse 14, he says, don't fear. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. So they're very key. The reason Christians are not to fear is because God is on the throne. Back to our theology. He's actually quoting here from Isaiah when King Ahaz was being threatened by Assyria. And, and, and God was bringing in an evil empire to punish. Here, here's what a lot of people miss. And this isn't written about a lot. It is written about some today, but not a lot. 
God sometimes intentionally places sinful people in a Christian's life for their growth and his glory. Francis Chan puts it this way. You cannot fully mature without being attacked. And it's interesting, the Puritans wrote about this all the time. Thomas Watson, John Flavel, Jeremiah Burroughs. And if we fail to see this, we will miss God's sovereign hand in our trials. And what's going to happen? We'll just get bitter. We'll get stuck. We'll blame God, blame others, and we'll poison our own soul. So count yourself blessed. Don't fear. Third, be ready to share the gospel. Verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. The, word an- the, the, the English word answer here comes from the Greek word apologia. We get our English word apology, but it, they don't mean anything the same. The, the Greek word apologia means a, a reasoned answer or a defense, meaning times of mistreatment offer a believer a tremendous opportunity to show where our anchor really is and to share the gospel. And fourthly, this one is so important. Keep a clear conscience when you're being mistreated. Don't resort to get even tactics. That is so tempting to all of us. Verses 16 and 17 are so clear on this. Don't resort to get even tactics. Keeping a clear conscience. This is all in the context of being mistreated. Keep a clear conscience. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's especially important, friends. Young people, hear this. Especially important. When you're getting mistreated, keep a clear conscience. Don't do get-even stuff. You'll resent it later. You'll be regretful later. And you'll lose self-respect. You'll dishonor Christ. And you're certainly not going to present a gospel witness to the person. All right, before we uh, see, Gabe said, bring the ship into harbor. Pastor Marty said, before we put the Quaker back in the box or land the plane, I want to talk as we end about something Peter does not directly address but is very relevant here. How do you forgive mistreatment? How do you forgive? Let's just get very practical here as a close. And I want to give you just a couple very basic things. Omar Sutherland, great saint who used to attend here, used to say, always go back to the basics. Always go back to the basics. And forgiveness is one of those basics we got to keep going back to all the time. doesn't matter how mature you are in Christ. So a couple basics about forgiveness, and then we'll close this sermon. One, make sure you've found forgiveness with God first. It's a lot easier to forgive if you know Christ and you've repented and the Holy Spirit is alive in you. You then have the resources to forgive. Number two, admitting to bitterness is one of the hardest things but most essential things for healing. Absolutely critical. Bitterness is one of the most difficult sins to own and admit to and confess. We have a thousand ways to justify it. One of the greatest lines going is, I'm not bitter, I'm just hurt. Probably it started with hurt, deep wounding. That's usually where it begins. But being hurt very quickly metastasizes into bitterness. In just the last couple months, for whatever reason, God, through a number of places Becky and I have been, we've just bumped into a number of, I think, professing believers, strong professing believers, but who are bitter about different situations. And we, you know, as we talk with them and just gently bump into their lives, bitterness is spilling out of their cups. 
It's such a common reaction to life. And it's, the older you get, the more it can tend to build up like, like, like sludge in your veins. It just, it can, and it's deadly. And so admitting to bitterness is, you can't move towards peace until that's owned and confessed. Thirdly, this is a very critical basic to come back to often. Remember what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not downplaying what happened to you. It's not saying, oh, it wasn't a big deal. It's not dismissing it. It's not saying it didn't really happen. Someone asked me after the first service, a really good question. What does it mean to forget, you know, when someone, someone else has sinned against you? What does it mean to forget that? And I said, it means you don't hold it against them anymore. So remember what sin, when, when, when someone sins against you, remember what forgiveness is not. It's not downplaying it. What is it then? It's a phrase we go back to over and over again. Forgiveness is actually an act of blame. It's actually saying what you did was evil and I am letting it go. I am not going to resort to get even tactics. I am not going to practice evil for evil. I am going to let it go. It is one of the most important steps in the process. Fourthly, remember the consequences of not forgiving Jesus is very clear in Matthew 6.15. If we refuse to forgive others, God will not forgive our sins. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you're saved by forgiving people. What Jesus is saying is if I'm clinging to an unforgiving spirit, I'm, and, and, and that goes on and on, I'm likely showing I don't even know Christ and that I'm not forgiven. And lastly, realize that forgiveness is ultimately saying, I trust God. I remember a woman sitting in my office years ago pouring out her unhappiness about her marriage. She did not have an abusive husband. She just had a husband who was a jerk. Okay, I'll just say it that way. And she was just tired of being married to him. And as we sat and I asked her some questions and we talked, she finally admitted, you know what? I don't have any grounds for divorce. I just, I'm sick of this marriage. But she says, I have to trust God. And I need to do the right thing. And I'm going to stay in it. I'm going to love him. And I'm going to be obedient to Christ. Realize, ultimately, when you forgive, you're saying, I trust God. I close with this from Jeremiah Burroughs. I love his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, a favorite of Becky's and mine. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says, and he takes aim at the sin of murmuring. Great word. The sin of not trusting God and grumbling and complaining. I'm eminently guilty of that. Quote, so have any of your friends wronged you? Look up to God and see that the person is but an instrument in God's hands. If people wrong you, you ought to pity them rather than to murmur or be discontented. The great design God has in afflicting us is to break and humble our heart. When we murmur and are discontent, we resist the work of God God is doing us good if we would but see it. Isn't that a great quote? If you're looking for a good resource about forgiveness, I couldn't do anything better than recommend a new resource from Tim Keller, who recently just went to be with Jesus. He's having a lot better Sabbath than we are today. Uh, forgive. His newest, I think it's his last book he wrote before he died. Tim Keller. If you're looking for a practical resource, how to forgive and work through that. Father, thank you for this challenge this teaching this practical biblical meat as we now sing in response and then as we hear josh do special music in just a minute may this stir us and move us towards forgiveness
Father, we thank you that in Christ, we have the resources to forgive those who mistreat us. In Jesus' name, amen.